Hello and welcome everyone to episode 13 of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. If you haven't already, please listen to episode 11 and 12 of this podcast. Those are parts 1 and 2 of the Terror in California series on this podcast. While I will do a summary of parts 1 and 2 in this episode, it's best to listen to them in order as I'm going to reference several things from parts 1 and 2 that will make a lot more sense if you've listened to them. And if you haven't already done so, check out the other episodes of True Blue Crime Podcast on all podcast platforms. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. And more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly... You can reach me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And finally, if you can, please support me on Patreon uh, via True Blue Crime Productions on Patreon. Any support will help ensure that I can keep putting out these free episodes of the podcast. So if you like what you hear and you can, please donate to Patreon. Any donations will receive a personalized shout-out on the next episode of the podcast and a thank you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to on, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. Uh, Please hop into that rate and review section of the app for the podcast and leave a nice review and a rating if you could that allows us to expand the listenership and get this podcast out to even more people. So... Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Just a quick summary of parts one and two, just in case there's been a break uh, since you listened to those episodes. In part one, we discussed the crimes of the Cordova cat burglar and the Visalia ransacker. The Visalia ransacker's crime spree kind of waned in the months of 1975 after the suspect has already shot and killed one person and then shot and wounded a police officer and almost all related activity in that area ceased after the shooting. But starting in 1976, a prolific string of crimes is going to haunt the East Sacramento area, and people started living in fear for almost three years as a suspect seemingly hunted at will. Then, after committing 46 known rapes and two homicides, he would again move to a new hunting ground, and this time he's going to be hunting in Southern California. It's at this point that police believe they have what's called the original Night Stalker. So this is a name that's given to the suspect that up until 2018, he wasn't identified, but he was suspected of committing 10 murders in Southern California between 1979 and 1986. And while the pace of these crimes is nowhere near the pace that we saw of the crimes committed by the East Area Rapist during that three-year span, the crimes committed by the original Night Stalker are going to be much worse. Now, the reason the suspects named the original Night Stalker is to differentiate him from the man known as the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. So at some point in this podcast, I will cover Richard Ramirez's crime spree. Richard Ramirez is given the nickname the Night Stalker by the media, and his murder spree ran for 14 months from 1940. 84 and through 1985 also in Southern California. We're going to see this timeline kind of run in 
to Richard Ramirez's crime spree, and as a result, police are going to believe at the time that these are these crimes are all related, and so a lot of the crimes were affiliated with the Night Stalker, but once Richard Ramirez was captured and they realized he was not responsible for uh, many of the crimes that had been dubbed crimes of the Night Stalker and that because these crimes occurred before Richard Ramirez's crime spree, he was given the moniker the original Night Stalker. So while this wasn't always recognized as an original Night Stalker crime, and it's not one that he would eventually be charged with or admit to, the first crime the suspect is believed to have committed after moving to this area was an uh, East Area Rapist-style crime in the city of Goleta, California. Goleta is an oceanside town approximately two hours northwest of downtown LA and about eight miles west of the well-known town of Santa Barbara, California. It's a small town by Southern California standards as it currently has a population of around 32,000 people. Now this is going to be the night of October 1st, 1979 at 2 a.m. The victims are asleep in, the, in their bed and woke up to a male voice in their bedroom and a flashlight beam in their face. He ordered them to lie on their stomachs, and then he threw pre-cut lengths of rope onto the bed. The wife was forced to tie her husband's bindings, and then the suspect tightened the male's bindings and tied up the wife. He demanded to know where the money was and threatened to kill them multiple times. When he was told where the woman kept her purse, he left the room and rummaged through the house a bit, and then came back and told her he couldn't find her purse and she needed to come with him so she could show him. He ordered her into the living room and onto the floor. He continued to threaten to kill her and told her he was going to cut her throat. The suspect left to go rummage some more and check on the male and the woman, now blindfolded by a pair of shorts over her head. She gets to her feet and tries to hop out the door, but because she can't see well, she crashed into a wall instead of the door. However, she does quickly find the door and manage to get it open, but the suspect, having heard the crash, closes on her and grabs her just as she gets outside. He puts a knife to her throat and tells her he's, he will kill her and drags her back inside the home. Now she's screaming at this point and the husband, hearing his wife screams, believes that she's being killed. And so now with her potentially being murdered, there's no point in him laying there helpless. So he gets to his feet and makes his way over to a sliding bedroom door and he's able to get it open and get out into the backyard. He's hopping through the backyard and he has to figure out a way to get through this fence in the backyard. So he tries to crash it down by jumping into it. The fence holds, but the noise is gonna attract the attention of the attacker. So the attacker comes and scans the backyard with his flashlight trying to find the male victim who's now hiding in the bushes. All this commotion has woken a neighbor between the screams and the crashing sounds. He turns on a light and starts yelling to see what's going on. This is going to cause the suspect to panic and flee the scene. Meanwhile, the female victim is able to get her ankle bindings free and the shorts off her head, and she runs out into the street and flags down a passing car. At this same time, an off-duty FBI agent who happened to be driving by as the suspect fled the home, he sees this man wearing a ski mask running from a house in the middle of the night, so he gives pursuit. The suspect jumps on a bike and was able to lose the FBI agent by ditching the bike and jumping fences through a neighborhood. This bike and the knife from the attack are going to be located 
However, the suspect was able to elude capture again. The FBI agent returns to the house, locates the female victim, and together they find the male victim who's still bound, but he's unharmed in the backyard. Police arrive and find the bike that was used and find that it had been stolen from a residence around 7 p.m. that same evening. Now, due to the distance from Sacramento and the lack of awareness of the common methods of the East Area Rapist, and the fact the suspect was interrupted before he could commit a rape, investigators originally believed this was just a botched burglary and possibly by a drug addict looking for easy cash. And this is what the East Area Rapist would do on these crimes is at least in the beginning make the victims feel like he's just there for money and he's just going to tie them up so he can go through the house it wasn't until sometime into the attack that he would actually rape his victims and in this case not enough time had passed he was still kind of in that stage of rummaging through the house when he lost control of the scene so even though it is later going to be linked to EAR. It's at the time the police just look at it as this is just a botched burglary and treat it as such. This is also because there hadn't even been an attempted EAR attack since the failed July 5th attempt in Danville, California, and that's five hours north of Goleta, just outside the Bay Area of San Francisco and Oakland. So not only is this crime five hours away, it's been several months since the last East Area Rapist attack. So this would not be on the minds of anybody investigating this. This could let, this could be the East Area Rapist just due to time delay and geographical location. However, a few months later on December 30th, 1979 at 3 a.m., the suspect who's now gonna be known as the original Night Stalker is stalking a condo complex. This complex backs up to a wide open space and then some power lines, and canals. Now this is something we haven't talked about yet, and we didn't actually talk about in the first two episodes, but I may have mentioned it that the suspect in all of these cases like to commit crimes near canals or power lines or open spaces like parks because these are areas in which he can cover a large amount of distance on foot in a short amount of time in a straight line so not only for navigational purposes because it's very easy to get turned around in the dark he doesn't have to worry about running through a neighborhood and doing a full circle and coming back to the crime scene where the police are he knows all he has to do is get to this canal get to this power line get to this park trail and then as long as he follows that he usually had a vehicle or bicycle or something like that uh, stage somewhere for him to make his getaway. So this condo complex is actually going to back up to power lines and canals, which is something that he liked to use for his escape route. And he pries his way into an, into this occupied condo where Dr. Ray, Robert Offerman, who's an orthopedic surgeon, and his girlfriend, who's newly divorced, named Dr. Deborah Manning, she's a 35-year-old psychologist, are asleep in their bed. They were awoken by the suspect, but Deborah had time to hide some jewelry, so the suspect must not have been right on top of them. And Deborah must have assumed there's a guy in the house, he's looking for jewelry, cash, valuables, or whatever, so she hid the jewelry she had on her real quick. 
clearly there was at least some distance or she was making some surreptitious movements that the suspect wasn't seeing as she hid this jewelry. The suspect then puts out pre-cut lengths of white twine and ordered Deborah to tie Robert's wrists. The suspect was holding a gun and she complied. It's believed at this point the suspect had switched from saying, if I kill you, to now saying, I'm going to kill you, in order to get more fear out of his victims. This was what was said back in October and the other Galito attack was he was telling the victims, I'm going to kill you, which is partially why investigators believe that they both put up such a a fight against him when he had not raped or done anything to them in terms of physical harm yet. Uh, he had just tied him up at that point. It was They believe he switched his verbiage around to create more fear, and this actually made the victims feel like it's either fight or die. And again, here the result of him using the potentially using this terminology is that after the suspect ties up Deborah's wrists, he went to tie up Robert's ankles. That was he would have the the female tie up the male's wrists first, since hands are more dangerous than anything else in a in a fight and then he would tie up the woman's wrist so now he's got at least half control of, of both people or more than half control of both people but as he goes to tie up robert's ankles robert lunges at him suspect shoots robert once in the chest and robert falls to the ground on his stomach and he shoots robert three times in the back he then turns and shoots deborah once in the back of the head before he leave, leaving the residence now, neighbors would hear the gunshots, but assume they were fireworks because this is, you know, December 30th, the night before New Year's Eve, so they thought somebody was just firing off fireworks early for the New, Year ho- New Year's holiday. However, next day, there's going to be a welfare check called in because the couple didn't answer phone calls, and this would start the investigation into this murder and a look back at that botched burglary back in October with new eyes. Because now as they investigate this double homicide, they're going to see that the suspect wore the same size and pattern of shoes for this crime as was found at the October crime scene. And those same shoe prints were found in the yard where the bike the suspect used to elude the FBI agent and the knife was found. The gun in this case used had been a 38 caliber revolver. Now, I didn't find him anywhere in the research that this was the same 38 caliber revolver that killed Claude Snelling. However, the suspect in this case has burglarized and ransacked several homes and taken several guns, so it's, it's possible it wasn't the same gun. And his change from using that 45 caliber semi-automatic that he was using in a lot of his EAR cases back to revolver is an interesting change revolvers for those of you that don't know a whole lot about handguns uh, revolvers since there are usually either five or six shot uh, rotating cylinder that holds the bullets for one they can't usually hold as many bullets as a semi-automatic magazine is going to hold as i said it's usually five to six bullets versus a semi-auto magazine holding upwards of 18 bullets even in a non 
high capacity magazine. So you're gonna get two to three times as many bullets in a semi-automatic handgun magazine as you are in the cylinder of a revolver. And also the, re the reload process for a revolver is, requires a lot more dexterity uh, as you're gonna either have to load each round into a, a, a empty chamber in the cylinder or there are things such as speed loaders that will assist the person in loading, reloading the revolver all in one fluid motion, but these are not going to be very common for somebody outside of law enforcement uh, to carry. So the only upside for a criminal using a revolver is the fact that after the shot is fired out of a revolver, the cylinder spins and the shell casing that was fired stays in the cylinder. So the suspect has five or six shots before he has to reload. And if he doesn't have to reload, those shell casings stay in the gun and, and, and leave the crime scene with them. Whereas in the case of a semi-automatic, every time the trigger is pulled, a round is gonna fire and the gun is immediately going to eject that shell casing out of the gun. So if you fire five or six shots with a semi-automatic handgun, there are now five or six shell casings somewhere around that, the point of shooting. And unless you take the time to find all of them, you've now left evidence with a, uh, with identifying characteristics on it at the crime scene that could be linked back to you via the gun. So just an interesting difference between the fact he was using a semi-automatic earlier and then now he's switched back to a revolver. Uh, police did, still did not realize this was possibly related to the East Area Rapist cases. They knew All they knew now is that they had an attack in October, and then they'd also been experiencing a string of burglaries and ransackings where the suspect was prying doors and entering unoccupied residences, and, and then in one case, a dog was killed, likely to silence it. So... It sounds as if, even since October, that the East Area Rapist, the suspect in all of these cases, is back to his old ways. The, he's doing everything he's done since he's been the Cordova Cat Burglar, the Visalia Ransacker, and the East Area Rapist. He's just combined all of these crimes, and he's now going into these homes and also committing murder. But before he's going into these homes, he's likely doing the same things where he's reconning homes by breaking into them when nobody's home to see who lives there and to see if it's a good layout for him to commit his crimes. So they just think they've got this guy running around committing these burglaries and they just happen to have one of them, one of them go wrong and the victims are able to escape, and then now one of them go wrong where the victims are killed. And they kept calling them botched burglaries, but as I mentioned in an earlier episode, once somebody's gone into a home, especially when they're bringing pre-cut pieces of rope, it's no longer, their intention is not to burglarize the home, their intention is to rob the home. They're going to use force to take the, any items of value, so it's, it's no longer a botched burglary, it would be a, a home invasion robbery gone wrong, but... Again, it's just semantics, but something that when I listen to to true crime podcasts, it just kind of gets under my skin. So I can't use the same terminology and then be hypocritical on my own podcast. So um, 
So now we're gonna move forward to March 13th of 1980. Uh, we're now in the uh, Oceanside town of Ventura, California. And now this lies on the ocean about halfway between Goleta and LA. On March 16th, a 12 year old boy named Gary who lives with his mother would bike over to his father's house to mow the lawn. When he arrived, he saw papers piled up on the porch and full milk bottles on the rear of the home. Now, again, this is not something that people are going to be used to seeing in, in 2023, but back in the day when milk delivery was delivered fresh to your door, that would be another sign for police officers or people to be suspicious that that milk still had to be brought in and put into a refrigerator. So if it's being left out there all day, you know, people weren't going to neglect their milk deliveries unless they don't have a way to get that milk. And so this is what the, the son's going to see is this milk left out. And he goes inside to check on his father, Lyman Smith, and finds him dead in the bed. Also dead in the bed was Gary's stepmother, Charlene Smith. Now, these two had been married under some somewhat scandalous conditions and had a rocky marriage. Charlene was 33 and Lyman was 43. Now, not that 10 years difference age difference is a big deal, but Charlene had been Lyman's secretary and she'd already been married twice by the and divorced by the time she was 28. And a lot of people saw her as a, as a gold digger. And I'm not trying to speak ill of, of the murdered victims here. I'm just saying there was some stuff going on that people were questioning. And the fact that uh, Charlene very early in their marriage had an affair with a police officer and Lyman was a successful lawyer and judge, but he was also involved in a lot of shady business deals or what people saw as shady business deals with international clients. And so they're going to actually be killed uh, by being bludgeoned to death in the, in the bed. And people are going to take a look at this and consider it to be some type of either organized crime hit or a targeted hit of some sort. But they are going to find that both parties have been bound and that Charlene had been raped. And both parties were back in the bed when the suspect decided to murder them with what was believed to be a log from the backyard. The suspect struck both of them in the head hard enough to kill them and then left the scene. So the fact that some of this matches the East Area Rapist isn't enough for police to say, and, and again, they're quite a distance away from the hunting grounds for the East Area Rapist, but they're going to look at this and look at the kind of questionable past of these two individuals and say, this looks like somebody who is very upset with these people, not somebody who had just stumbled across them. And as they're processing the home, they're actually going to find a fingerprint belonging to one of Lyman's business partners on a drinking glass. And this guy had been had lost most of his fortune in bad investments with Lyman. But Lyman had, I don't know if Lyman had pulled out of these investments before they went bad or if he just had enough other successful investments to absorb the cost of these losses. But a lot of people looked at this guy as having motive to kill both of them and to kill them with quite a bit of anger. So he actually is going to be put through the pretrial process before a judge. However, it's going to come out that he had reason to be at the home and drinking from that glass 
before the murders occurred. And since that was the only link between him and the murders, the judge found there was not enough evidence to bring the case to trial. And ultimately, later on, and I think it's 1997, they're going to link this to the East Area Rapist and original Night Stalker. Now, at the same time, with these murders happening, now double homicide in Galito, and then now this homicide in the nearby town of Ventura, this is when people are going to start to think there is a murderer on the loose, but they're not going to yet tie it to East Area Rapist, so this is when these murders are going to be called the Night Stalker murders. So now we move to August 19th of 1980, and we go about an hour south of LA this time to the Oceanside city of Dana Point. Now this is a town similar in size to Goleto, and the city's known for its amazing surfing, and in 1954 it was home to the world's first surf retail shop. Now the cool ocean breeze means that even hot summer days have cool summer nights, and the homes in the city had often had spectacular views of the ocean to the west and or the mountains to the east. The homes in one neighborhood were upper middle class and the only road in and out of the neighborhood had a manned security gate. So people are gonna feel safe and secure in this ideal coastal community. In one of the homes, a young couple named Keith and Patty Harrington lived. This was a corner house in the neighborhood and Keith was a 24 year old med student and Patty was a 28 year old nurse. And they were living rent free in this home because it was owned by Keith's father and Keith's father was gonna let him live there for free as long as he continued his studies in medical school at nearby UC Irvine. And his father had actually bought the house for a reasonable price eight years earlier to keep as an investment property, so it was kind of the perfect home for this young couple to live in for the time period in which he's doing studies so he can focus on his studies and they don't have to worry about finances as much. Unfortunately, it's going to be Keith's father who's came over to the house for a dinner he had been invited to uh, earlier in the week, who would find the bodies of his son and daughter-in-law in the spare bedroom of the house. Now, they slept in the spare bedroom because it was still Keith's father's house, and they felt that, out of respect, they should not sleep in the master bedroom, that that should be reserved for nights where he comes and crashes at the house. So the fact they are found in the spare bedroom is not surprising. That's, that's where they actually slept. They discovered that Keith and Patty had been dead for days. Keith had an apparent head wound and little to no blood, and Patty was covered in blood and it looked as if she had been savagely beaten to death. The investigation would reveal that both parties had been bound at some point, and then some form of a weapon later revealed that brass on it, and they believe it was um, a sprinkler head or, or something along the sorts that was uh, in the garage, was used to beat them to death. The suspect then cut their bindings and covered them up with a sheet before leaving the residence. And Patty would, have, would be found to have been sexually assaulted before death. Now, it was believed that the suspect surprised the couple in their bed and used his typical MO of having the female tie up the male and then he ties up, or, and then the suspect ties up the female. He likely brought her to another room to rape her and then returned her to the bed. And for some reason he decided that instead of leaving, he would murder them and did so by a single blow to Keith's head and then Patty, likely understanding her fate, put up a fight and the suspect had to work a lot harder to kill her. The cut bindings were likely an attempt by the suspect to remove evidence from the scene, but he missed some of the, the remaining cut bindings. And again, because 
this isn't matching up to what they're seeing in Galito. It's not exactly matching up to what they saw in Ventura. The police departments aren't communicating as well then as they do now. And this is south side of L.A. The other crimes are north side of L.A. And East Area Rapist is up in Sacramento. They're not going to link this case to the East Area Rapist or original Night Stalker until DNA uh, links them in 1997. Now, on February 6th of 1981, we go to Irvine, California. Now, Irvine, California is a major city that sits in the southeast portion of the greater L.A. area. In 1980, it had a population of 62,000, but has since expanded and currently sits at 300,000 people. The suspect entered a two-story home in a middle-class neighborhood, and he appeared to know his way around the house and made his way to the bedroom where 28-year-old Manuela Whithoon was sleeping. Whithoon was a German-born woman who had married an American of German descent named David. On this night, David was in the hospital fighting a viral infection, and Manuela's father lived nearby, and he offered to lend her his German shepherd to keep her safe for the night, but she declined. She said that she would feel safe sleeping in a sleeping bag, and so she rolls up the sleeping bag and falls asleep. She wakes up to a man on top of her holding something metal through her throat. She would then be bound, raped, and beaten to death. Just like the case in Dana Point, the suspect is going to remove her ligatures after death, but the ligature marks are going to remain. And the house had also been staged to look like an interrupted burglary. A TV had been taken outside and left by a fence. But police did not believe the staging and believe that, the, that this was entirely a rape and murder from the very beginning. So the suspect's trying to change up some of the stuff that he does because he understands that police are linking him based on this. So instead of just sneaking into the house and committing a rape and murder and leaving and leaving the suspect bound, he's going to make some attempts to make the scene look like he was just committing a burglary and the homeowner woke up and then he happened to ha had to beat her to death and then took off in a panic. So he's trying to outsmart the police, but the police are seeing through this and, and realizing, again, th these are going to be... And, the, and again, this is, but this is not going to be linked to the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker until the DNA match in 1997. So now we go to July 27th of 1981. We head back to the town of Goleta. Now, things had settled down. It had been 18 months since the murder of the two doctors, and that case was not even close to being linked to any other murders or crimes of any type. So most residents believed it was just a home invasion that went wrong, and it was likely a drifter who had long since left town. 35-year-old Sherry Domingo had recently been laid off, but she worked in the growing world of computers, and she felt she could find a job easy enough. To make finances easier, she had listed her house for sale, and on the evening of July 26th, her one-time boyfriend and still friend, Gary Sanchez, was going to stay the night. He was 28 and handsome athletic, and she looked forward to a relaxing evening with him. Sometime around 3.25 in the morning, a single gunshot was heard by a neighbor, followed by a scream, and then dogs barking for 45 minutes, and then it was quiet. I never really understand, again, why people would hear what they believe to be a gunshot and then screams and then 45 minutes of dog barking and not call the police. I can understand a single gunshot because people will mistake it for fireworks or mistake fireworks for a gunshot and they don't want to waste the police time. 
but a gunshot and a scream and then followed by 45 minutes of dog barking it seems to me like that would be something that I wouldn't be super comfortable going back to sleep after hearing something like that and I would be more apt to call the police now that doesn't mean that the police are going to arrive and discover exactly where this crime occurred the gunshot being inside of a house the house is going to look normal from the outside so I'm not saying that if this neighbor had called things would have been different but it just when I read that realized I should probably take a sidebar at this point and and talk about how some people will call about everything and some people don't call at all as I mentioned the house is up for sale the realtor is actually going to arrive the next day at noon for a scheduled showing and find Sherry and Greg dead in the home Greg had been shot once in the cheek and then suffered 24 blows to his head. Sherry had been was found bludgeoned to death on the bed, and her wrists and ankles had ligature marks, but the bindings had been removed from the scene by the suspect. Now, this was a murder scene police were starting to recognize, and it had all the elements of the recent unsolved homicides. There have been several murders to this point, and again, I, I kind of pointed out afterwards that they're not going to be linked to anything truly until 1997. Uh, with DNA but this is when police are going to start to scratch their heads and say we've got these murders happening in the middle of the night in and around the LA area we think we have a serial killer we're going to call him the Night Stalker and the next crime is not actually going to be till 1986 it's going to be May 4th of 1986 so back in Irvine, it's been almost five years since the murder of, of Manuela Witten, and Los Angeles had been terrorized by Richard Ramirez for much of 1984 and 1985, but he'd been caught in August 1985 and everyone was breathing a sigh of relief. So even the police who think it's not out of the realm of possibility that Richard Ramirez was killing, or, or the same person, I should say, that was killing the people in L.A., in 84 and 85 before he was caught police believe that the same guy was responsible for the, the middle of the night killings up in Galito and down in Dana Point and all that kind of stuff because it matched his MO to a certain degree so even the police are starting to feel like we've maybe put a stop to this so the public themselves have to be breathing a sigh of relief that maybe this spree of, of middle of the night murders is over so we're back in Irvine and 18 year old Janelle Cruz is sitting at home with a male friend when they kept hearing noises outside Janelle's family was away on vacation in Mexico at this time so she's got this male friend over they keep hearing noises they keep checking nobody's outside so at 10:45 p.m. her friend leaves and she's gonna make a quick errand to get a few things she returns to the house around 11:15. And when she returns to the kitchen of the house, an attacker jumps out, surprises her, and hits her in the head before gagging and binding her. She was raped and then bludgeoned to death, and the murder weapon was believed to be a pipe wrench that was found missing from the backyard. Her murder would go unsolved. 1997, DNA would link it to Aaron's, or East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker. This is going to be the last murder that's and major crime that's going to be linked to the East Area Rapist or the original Night Stalker. So in, from 1986 until 2018, many people are going to be investigated as being Eurons. And in 2013, the, the moniker the Golden State Killer gains popularity as it encompassed all of his crime sprees. So from now on in the series, I'm going to refer to 
the suspect as the Golden State Killer. Now, one thing we haven't talked about up until this point, we've mentioned that a lot of the victims, especially the victims of the East Area Rapist, would receive harassing phone calls or, or terrorizing phone calls. And I put the one phone call into the start of episode two, I believe it was, part two, maybe it's part one. Um, but anyway, he will continue this behavior well after he's done committing crimes to the point when all this was going on, he was much more active with it. So he would often call. So back in like in 1977, there are probably 15 to 20 phone calls that are associated with them where he is calling either a victim or a sheriff's office. Now, some of these calls to the sheriff's office are people saying I'm the east side rapist laughing and then hanging up. So while some of these or I should say, I don't know how many of these would actually be tied directly to the suspect, especially the ones to the police department. These could just be teenagers or, or people with mental health issues calling in to say this stuff. But a lot of the calls that were, are happening to the actual victims of the attacks, I would believe the only person that would know to do this or want to do this would likely be the suspect himself and when i when i say that it's documented that there's about 15 to 20 of these harassing phone calls i should say some of these documentations are just a generalized a lot of harassing phone calls occurred in the neighborhood before an attack so this isn't necessarily one or one phone call per documented incident here these, these could be several documented incidences a lot of the times the phone calls are going to be what I put into the podcast before where he's going to be calling a former victim and doing things like heavy breathing and calling them names and telling them uh, vulgar things over the phone. Now, again, most of these calls are going to appear in that 1977 to 1979 range where the East Area Rapist was most active. However... For example, as late as 1982, he's going to be calling uh, some of those victims from the East Area Rapist case, so three to four years after the incident. And in this case, uh, on October 21st, 1982, he calls the victim and says, Hi, it's me again. Remember me? I'm going to come over and blank you again, and you're going to blank again. So... And she identifies the voice, recognizes it as the guy who attacked her. So while some of these could be seen as prank calls or very misguided calls, whatever you want, however you want to say it, we do have victims identifying the voice on these calls as the as their attacker's voice. Now again, these these calls are going to continue into the 90s and into April 6th of 2001. One of the early victims of the EAR receives a phone call from a man who whispered, remember when we played? And she positively identifies the man as the voice of the East Area Rapist. And this phone call came just two days after the breaking news that the East Area Rapist crimes had been tied by DNA to murders in Southern California. So as this investigation is going on, and we'll talk about some of it in part four, 
the media every once in a while because this like the zodiac killer or any other case as it remained unsolved until 2018 people had to sit and wonder what happened to this the suspect he had committed all these atrocious crimes over such a extended period of time and at such an amazing pace and then all of a sudden he just stops but that doesn't mean the media coverage of it stops or the the victim stops speaking out or the police stop investigating him so every once in a while when dna links him to another case or they're starting to build this bigger picture of all the crimes that belong to what we now know as the golden state killer he's going to be seeing this on the news and the fact that he's making this phone call in 2001 gives police a few clues a he's still alive because some people would have figured that he was killed and whether it be something related to his crimes or he could have died from a medical issue he could have died in a car accident you know police don't know because he's not identified but as he continues to harass his victims police are continuing to know this guy's alive we gotta go we gotta find him now the other noteworthy call is that in spring of 2004 there was a series of hang-up phone calls that the sister of janelle cruz received in this in, in that spring now at the time that this was going on in spring of 2004 Bruce Harrington, who's the brother of Keith Harrington, the med student that was killed, was pushing Proposition 69 in California. Now, Proposition 69's main goal was to use law enforcement to force the California prison system to, to do a massive DNA sweep to look for his brother's killer. So we just talked about in 2001, they're continuing to link crimes back to this one suspect and tying together the at this time the Visalia ransacker and the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker all into one suspect so this Proposition 69 in California is going to force prisoners in the system to give up their DNA so that it can be compared to the known sample that's been linking all of these crimes together to see if this is the reason why the Golden State Killer has not been caught is because he's been sitting in prison for, at this point, 10, 15 years, whatever it's going to be. Proposition 69 does pass, but the Golden State Killer, as we know, was not found in the prison system. So just to go back and summarize, we've covered all of the crimes associated, or I shouldn't say all of the crimes, all of the major crimes associated with this suspect, all the way back to the Cordova Cat Burglar, to the original Night Stalker. We saw the progression of his crime from the cat burglar style entries into occupied homes, being as quiet as he could be, all the way to breaking into homes the same way, but changing it to where for no reason whatsoever he's murdering his people. And if you remember, at one point, he didn't want to murder someone that was tied up or bound up or, or even people that weren't unless they posed a threat to him. And at some point, he progressed so far along the criminal mental derangement scale that he decided that it was just going to be murder. And now part of that, I think, if you look back to his last two attempted rapes, that the one for sure up in the East Area Rapist area and then the first one in Galito, he had back-to-back -back situations where 
the victims outplayed him. And it makes me think that something in his mind switched then to the idea that his victims were not going to remain alive. He was going to, the second he faced resistance, or even once he had completed his crime, from then on out, people were going to die. His victims were going to die because he did not leave any victims alive that we know of after those two botched attempts, uh, the last East Area Rapist and the first original Night Stalker crime. So that's a lot of crimes to absorb over the course of three episodes. And I, I kind of knew when I sat down that this was going to be a lot of research and a lot of narrative about these crimes. However, my hope is that when we get to part four and I'm able to present both how they found the suspect and then we can explore his life and how it related to the crimes and how he got away with these crimes for so long and ultimately what he pled guilty to, I think it'll wrap this horrible monster of a case all up into something that's at least somewhat comprehensible in the end is I guess the best term for it. So so that'll be part four. I will start working on that immediately after this podcast is uploaded and hope to have it out within the next couple days. Just kind of depends on, on my schedule there. But anyway, I appreciate everybody uh, sticking around and listening and Please stay tuned for future episodes. Again, feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. That will go to me and only me, the host of the show. I still am taking recommendations for any cases that you'd like to see covered. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook. And again, if you could support me on Patreon, that'd be greatly appreciated. But until next time, guys, thanks. Have a great day. Goodbye.